Hey listeners, I'm excited to tell you about the American Society of Nephrology's Loan Mitigation Pilot Program. So if you or someone you know is going into nephrology, they need to know about this. It's a chance to decrease the loan burden of those entering the field of nephrology while also increasing interest in the specialty. Year one of the program will center on individuals historically underrepresented in medicine. If you have questions about the program, direct them to grants at asn-online.org or visit asn-online.org forward slash LMPP for Loan Mitigation Pilot Program. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're back. This is The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. How are you doing tonight, Paul? I'm great, Matt. How are you doing? Good. And we have a third co-host. We'll introduce them in a second. But up front, I want to tell you, we're going to be talking about atrial fibrillation or AFib. This is one of our triple distilled shows where we walk through a previous show and we're really going to pull out like all of our favorite pearls from this one. This was a really deep dive with a great guest and... Listening back, Paul, I got to say it holds up. I don't know what you feel, but I think it holds up. I got to, you know, I, I had to wonder what what's happened to us, Matt. You know, I listened <laughs> back and like I, I'd forgotten that I used to shame the audience every single episode. Like I would just tell, call them bad people and accuse them of being awful for skipping the beginning. So I so I'm sorry for people who missed that part. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we should bring back the 20 minute intros, Paul, where we uh, <laughs> spend 20 minutes getting sure. to know our guests. Um well, Paul, can you remind the audience, what is it that we generally do on the Curbsiders? And then can you introduce our third co-host? Sure, happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Usually, um, as you mentioned tonight, we're actually just going to re recap an episode that we've already done where we already talked uh, to an expert who brought us a ton of pearls about atrial fibrillation. So uh, we talked to Dr. Ferguson, who, as you said, talked us through it. But before we get to his specific points and the stuff that we liked about the episode, I am thrilled to introduce our third co-host. You know her, you love her. She is Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who's going to be sort of helping to steer this ship. Beth, how are you? I'm doing well, but I don't feel ready to steer. <laughs> <laughs> I or feel just like nudge the, it in the right direction. Just keep us from <laughs> the general the vibe falls. of MS4, and I think I'm just gonna feel that way next year too. It's you know the terrifying life of a rising intern almost next year. Eventually, before you know it, you're just gonna be like, "Wow, I've been doing this for quite a while," and uh, I, I you start to feel old, and then uh, you know <laughs> that first colonoscopy is just staring you staring me. <laughs> Staring in the what now? Yeah, pretty soon you'll be at the screening age, Beth, before you know it. That's <laughs> uh, that's pretty much my life now. All right. So, Beth, this, is num this was number 159. This was about a year and a half ago. This was Atrial Fibrillation featuring Dr. James Ferguson, produced and with infographic by Dr. Cyrus Askin. And as I said before, I think this one really holds up 
Beth, where do you want to start? What was one of your favorite pearls or take-homes from this? Yeah, this episode is fantastic. Um, when I was listening to it, I just kept thinking this is the perfect episode to sort of listen at the beginning of whatever your clinical year is, MS3, MS4, intern, PGY2, whatever. It's such a good overview of, of AFib. And I was telling somebody a couple of weeks ago, ago, very stupidly, everyone's got a touch of the AFib. I mean, not really, but <laughs> sometimes it feels that way. It's just so common to see it on your patient problem list. So this episode's fantastic. Um, what I really loved was uh, some of the primary care pearls. There was a really good mention of the idea of stressing the benefit of weight loss and exercise to patients who have a diagnosis of AFib because there is actual data to support that there will be a reduction in the uh, burden of AFib for that patient. We were going to include a link to this, but there's a recent study from last year, sort of right around the time that the pandemic started, that was published in uh, Circulation, I believe, and it kind of gives a great overview of the data to support that. So you can feel confident in encouraging people to lose weight and, you know, make them feel like this isn't something that they don't have control over a little bit. Yeah, I, I like that point a lot. And I, I think that's the other thing. So uh, part of this goes with prevention and part of this goes with management, because we we talked a little bit about how... In terms of prevention and management, you mentioned weight loss, fantastic control of blood pressure, absolutely doing your good screening for OSA and the appropriate patients is the right thing to do because management of OSA improves um, atrial fibrillation burden. And then even talking about things like alcohol use as potential triggers. Happily, we, we talked about this a little bit. Caffeine does not seem to be as big a trigger as we might actually worry about, which was fantastic news, I think, for all of us. Yeah, I think I think you made a joke about Irish coffee being your breakfast, so you you had to omit the, <laughs> omit the whiskey, but you could still have the coffee, sure. which is good news. I I, I think uh, the audience would be happy to know that their patients can still drink caffeine. He he did mention that some patients seem to be caffeine sensitive. If yep. they find it gives them palpitations, then just tell them to stop. But for the most part, uh, coffee sh coffee should be okay. But alcohol, especially. He said even moderate alcohol, what's considered moderate alcohol intake. So not just the people that are getting smashed on a Friday night, but like the person that's having a couple drinks, that that also might be a problem. Right, right. It's not just holiday heart. It is just alcohol in general. Yeah. And I, right. the, the thing that I like about this is it's. I, I feel like it's actually kind of empowering. I think if we're not careful, AFib can seem relatively passive and largely just a medicate or a thing that is dealt with with medications and possibly procedures. But this is a way to again, have patients sort of actively engaged in their health and specifically their cardiac health this time around. So I think that talking about patients' therapeutic lifestyle changes in this way as a way to control the disease state as opposed to just a thing that you're supposed to do because it's a good thing is actually is, is a pretty neat way to think about it. Paul, you mentioned that you, you asked about ischemia because we're going to talk about the workup for AFib when you we the case we gave Dr. Ferguson was somebody that was having palpitations, and then we eventually figured out they had AFib, and we asked, like, what additional testing might you get? And you asked about ischemia, so what was what was the deal there? Yeah, it's always nice when a, when a guest validates my own biases, and that was that was this case <laughs> where he, where Dr. Ferguson said that, you know, he does not think of ischemia at the top of his list as potential um, causes for underlying atrial fibrillation. He's much more likely to think about things like structural heart disease, so I, I, that's more at the top of his list, as opposed to things like an ischemic cause and doing the stress test for the workup. So he does, I think, a much more sort of bread and butter workup than you might even expect, where things like checking a CBC and a CMP and, and making sure it's not thyroid toxicosis, that would be an embarrassing thing to miss. And then in terms of evaluating sort of structural stuff, even echocardiography, and even just a chest x-ray to rule out pulmonary uh, etiologies of atrial fibrillation are, are the places where heat starts and not necessarily sort of chasing down uh, an exercise stress test for the patients. And... I think one of the very interesting points that we got into when we were talking about this workup was cardiac monitoring. 
and he made the point. Um, I don't know, Beth, if you if you wear a cardiac monitor, if you have one on your on your watch, if it tell I don't have one of those fancy watches, so I don't know if they're like telling people they have AFib, but I believe they are. There's all sorts of wearables now. And then a lot of people have uh, pacemakers or other implanted devices. So we pick up a lot of AFib that we don't exactly know what to do with it, which is an issue. So he was saying, and Beth, have you heard any numbers? I mean, you've been kicking around the wards now uh, in the hospital. Have you heard any <laughs> numbers? Have you heard any anyone throw numbers out there about what's significant? Um, I think it's when it's, you know, any time from minutes to hours, like a sustained period, not sort of a short thing that you might notice on an exam that goes away. I think the longer it is, the more substantial it is. Yeah. And, and if you capture, I mean... You, if you capture AFib on an EKG, we'll, we'll get into this, but I, I think with the monitor specifically, they can tell when people come in and out of it. And sometimes it's like a couple seconds here, you know, like a, sh- a short run of atrial tachycardia or atrial fibrillation, and then they go out of it. It's, so it's seconds, it's not minutes, it's not hours. And certainly we know, we think that like he threw out the number, maybe more than six minutes. Uh, yeah, it's but, very specific. And he said minutes to hours is is what he would consider significant. I think, and I've I've talked to some people about this, if you see AFib, you can do their CHADS VAST score because if it's very high and if they have structural heart disease, you're probably going to treat that because it's probably going to come back as my thinking, even if it was only 30 seconds. I don't know, Paul, what you feel. Yeah, no, I, I think that that captures the discussion is that, you know, even if it's the so-called provoked AFib, though I, I think we, there are certain uh, exceptions like that where toxicosis might be a case where you don't necessarily think of it in the same framework. But in a lot of cases where like something is provoked by, say, stress, whatever that means, uh, and that's where the atrial fibrillation declares itself, that is just alerting you to the presence of a heart that is going to be predisposed to atrial fibrillation. I think we made the point that uh, an episode of AFib is probably the strongest predictor of future episodes of atrial fibrillation. So you, you really have to take it seriously, almost regardless of the duration, because it just it's not something that happens to completely normal hearts is, yeah. is the, the big takeaway that I took from it. Yeah, it's often paroxysmal, comes and goes as it pleases. And as the patient gets older, as the patient gets sicker, it's more likely to become longer duration. So even if you're capturing these short durations, you, you need to keep a close eye on that person, even if you decide you don't want to treat it up front. And the situation that we specifically asked about, I think Cyrus asked this, was like, if you have that sick patient, maybe they have a pneumonia or critical illness and they have AFib, do they get a free pass? The answer was very definitively, he said no, because, because of what we're talking about. You know, you should look at their Chad's VAS score you know, do they have structural heart disease? What's their overall risk? And and then you make your treatment decision on that, not based on, oh yeah, we're going to give them a free pass because they had a critical illness. No, their other stresses in their life could bring this back. And other than thyroid toxicosis, Paul, the other free pass was cabbage because he's like, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. they just had their chest cracked <laughs> open and their pericardium cut into, and you know, that those people are allowed to have a little AFib. And he even mentioned- <laughs> As a treat, <laughs> he he mentioned that he might uh, he he might even do like a monitor uh, about a month out to see if it's right. still happening. Because in that case, then then maybe you would treat it. So let's talk about rate versus rhythm control. Beth, what are they teaching in the medical schools these days? <laughs> are they still telling you that they're pretty much uh, you know it's dealer's choice? I feel like I've been taught generally to to approach the rate first, usually. Yeah. I think yeah, that, I, yeah, I don't know if it's just the sketchy sketch I saw that terrified me about anti, uh, you know, like rhythm control agents <laughs> being like all, full of all these side effects and whatever, but. <laughs> yeah, the rhythm control, he did mention that the antiarrhythmics, they, they have a narrow therapeutic index, lots of drug-drug interactions. 
They require a lot of monitoring and follow-up. It's definitely not something that I don't know too many or maybe any primary care doctors that are messing around with rhythm control agents. And uh, yeah, rate control, this was the Affirm trial, which he actually mentioned he was a part of. It was back. Uh, it was published in New England Journal in 2002, and the Affirm trial was where they looked at rate versus rhythm control and looking to see, you know, does this decrease mortality? Does one or the other? And um, there was no difference, but the rhythm control people, because of the reasons I was just saying, had needed a lot more monitoring. Sometimes they were hospitalized more frequently. So not very patient-centered um, for something that's not going to make them live longer. Paul, what do you think about this whole rate control, rhythm control, and like how do you choose people that are going to get rhythm control? Yeah, no, unfortunately, like I... It, it's more nuanced than I was hoping it would be. Like it's, yeah. it's so nice when things are binary and we can just say, no, uh, rate control is better and that's all we need to, to worry about. But I, I thought that there was a really nice discussion. Dr. Ferguson actually went into who he might consider for rhythm control specifically. And I thought that was a really helpful framework. One thing that I, I especially like that we talked about a little bit before we started recording was just the symptomatic burden of atrial fibrillation. There are patients who just who feel it even if you achieve rate control. So they may, they may still be having symptomatic atrial fibrillation, even if their rate is relatively well controlled. And we can talk about later on what, how we're defining sort of rate control. and Because <laughs> yeah. um, apparently it's a little bit of a moving target depending on how well you do. But, you know, he made the point, one of the sets of patients that he thinks about rhythm control are those patients who are symptomatic and are just not tolerating rate control. And then there are other patients uh, like those who have pre-excitation syndromes like Wolf-Parkinson-White or they're also young and active athletes who just can't really afford to have atrial fibrillation or seem to be bothered more by it are, are other people who might benefit more from a rhythm control standpoint than a rate control. Right. Yeah, I think because the Wolf-Parkinson-White, the pre-excitation, they have that accessory pathway, right? So if like if this like super fast wave gets down the accessory pathway, it can really make right, that person sick. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. and I think that's why he mentioned that because I was like, wait, why, why do you want to do that? But I, I think that's the reason... And the the athletes he mentioned that these some of these like super fit people they actually develop atrial arrhythmias sometimes they get like palpitations at night and those were people that uh, he he does sometimes cardiovert or put on rhythm control of some sort or opt for rhythm control of some sort and then there was some ablation uh, talk on the show as well and I'll, I'll try to summarize this as best I can and I actually looked up an update on this. And so there's there's some great names to these trials, <laughs> Beth and Paul. Um, so the first names. The, names for the youth, <laughs> names that the youth will appreciate. Names that the youth will appreciate. Thank you. So the uh, the radio f- frequency ablation uh, of AFib is, I guess, a type of rhythm control, or it's it's like you know they're trying to ablate the rhythm so that it doesn't come back. And uh, there was a large trial, the Cabana trial, which looked at just like a big, broad population of people with AFib. This was, I believe, the largest randomized trial, at least at the time we recorded this. And that one did not show a benefit, like no decrease in MACE, uh, major adverse cardiac events for all comers. But there was a different study, Castle AF, and uh, this trial was amazing, obviously, by the name. And uh, <laughs> these patients had AFib and HEF-REF, so uh, decreased ejection fraction, and they actually did see a decrease in major adverse cardiac events. But since we recorded this, the Cabana trial had a follow-up, like a sub-study. And apparently this was pre-specified, so I guess that means it's kind of legit, Paul. And this pre-specified sub-study looked at the patients with heart failure in this larger Cabana trial. And they found that those patients who had heart failure, most of whom had heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, actually did seem to have 
a, a lower mortality, better quality of life with ablation. And uh, this was published in circulation in 2021. It was by Packer. Um, so we will we will post that in there. So Paul, we've talked a lot about the rhythm control here. And uh, uh, do you want to try to summarize this for the audience? Because I feel like we've done a lot of, you know, we talked about rhythm control. We talked about ablation. So who might you consider for like rhythm control of any kind? Just recap for the audience. And who might you consider for ablation based on what we've talked about? So based on what we talked about, if I can recall, because we took a lot of detours that may or may not actually make it to air, but the patients that you would consider rhythm control for would be patients who are have a lot of symptomatic burden of atrial fibrillation. So patients who are, are feeling it, even despite having rate control, they might be candidates for rhythm control. Uh, patients with pre-excitation syndromes like Wolf, Parkinson, White, because those patients are at risk for um, just screaming and tachyarrhythmias that could go south. So that's not great. There are also a subset of young very active athletes, so patients who are super healthy that have these high vagal tones who can actually develop atrial fibrillation and will feel it, and they might be candidates for rhythm control as well. And then in terms of radiofrequency ablation, so far as we can tell, and, and we, we won't get into this too, too much, but the patients with reduced systolic function, so HEF-REF, seem to have benefit with radiofrequency ablation. And then, and then I think that there is some more uh, recent data that's even looked at patients with HEF-PEF that might show some benefit, though we didn't really talk about that too, too much in the episode. Um, did I hit the high points? I think that was great. Yeah. Let's go on. Before we go on, in in a a rare moment, we should probably define rate control because I don't think we talked too too much about this, about what what rate we should be targeting. Uh, So let's let's go back to that uh, moving target, which I like very much. Yeah. So how, Garbs, can I call you Garbs? I should probably probably ask that. You can call me Garbs. Garbs is my name. People people call me all kinds of things. (laughs) 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 Well, we'll explore that off air. But... um, (laughs) Hey, audience, I bet your hospital has those boxy, itchy cotton scrubs with stains all over them that no one likes to wear, no one likes the way they look, no one likes the way they feel. But fortunately for you, Figs has a mission to make awesome scrubs so healthcare professionals can look, feel, and perform their best. They've created technically advanced apparel and products with unmatched comfort, function, durability, and style with the goal of making life a little easier for you because let's face it, you've got a tough job. They have a proprietary Fion X fabric. It's ridiculously soft. It stretches. It's moisture wicking, anti-wrinkle. It has antimicrobial technology in there as well. And these things have so many pockets. You can get them with like 20 pockets if you wanted to. Personally, I've been wearing figs for over a year. I have like five pairs. I love their Tanzan joggers, their Leon two-pocket scrub tops. These are some of the most comfortable clothes that I have ever owned. That's most comfortable clothes that I have ever owned. So if you are one of the awesome humans who work in healthcare, Figs wants you to wear the scrubs you deserve and enjoy 15% off your first order. And if you're not working on the front lines, thank someone who is with the best scrubs in the world Figs will give you 15% off too. So head to wearfigs.com, that's W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter the code CURB at checkout and get ready to love your scrubs. So 
carbs, let's say we opt for rate control for our patients. What what should we be shooting for? Is there a specific target or should we just be thinking about what's good enough or what, what kind of framework should we think about when we're actually trying to achieve rate control? Yeah, based on the guidelines that we talked about in this episode, you'd want a rate that's less than 80. That's the preferred, that's uh, 2A evidence, so moderate. A rate less than 110 is 2B, so moderate to okay evidence um, saying that that's acceptable if you can get it below that. And uh, our guest was kind of noting that most cardiologists will shoot for less than 80 if they can make it happen. Yeah, Paul, what do you think about this? Uh, what what target do you shoot for? I, I thought it was pretty funny, the discussion that, that we had about this. Yeah, I can't remember if you made this joke on air or not, but I feel like race is the, the trial that this is based on is mostly cited when you can't actually get to 80. So then you're like 110 is good enough. And I feel like that's... <laughs> That's probably exactly right. Like it's it's close enough for government work if you can just get it around 100. But if you're less than 80, then you feel like a good doctor. I think that's but I think that's patient centered. You know, it's good evidence to know. And so you wouldn't like necessarily there's no reason to like if the patient is on one med and they're like their heart rate 75. It's like, great. High five yourself. But if you're if you're thinking about adding like the third or fourth agent and the patients feel like in the low 100s and they feel fine, then, then you know, you can just be like, yeah, race two, see you later. <laughs> like, that's well, sure. it. And or, or you're bumping up against blood pressure, which is sometimes sure. also the issue, too. So rather than having someone with symptomatic hypotension who hits the ground with great rate control, um, sometimes you can be a little bit more lenient and still feel okay about it. So we're going to talk about anticoagulation. Uh, Paul, we know that the left atrial appendage is a place where a lot of the clots form. So let's say, Paul... I'm a cardiac surgeon, and I was going to crack someone's chest, and I was going to be mucking around in there. Sure. Uh, should I just close that thing up? What do you think? I, I'm going to say go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say go for it based on a relatively recent study. I'm assuming this is the path that you're leading us down. Yeah. That actually showed uh, some benefit. I, I don't know if it's pronounced the Laos. There's two A's in there, I believe. It's L-A-A-O-S. Uh, not catchy. There's no A-F in there at all. It's really a lot of missed opportunities for our friends in cardiology. But basically did just that. We're randomized patients who are going to be getting, <laughs> I love this, we're going to be getting surgery anyway. And then the, the one group was like, well, while you're in there, just go ahead and close off the left atrial appendage and let's just sort of see what happens. It was a little bit, they made it sound more scientific than that. <laughs> but basically, it turns out those those patients had better outcomes, which is kind of in contrast to sort of, I think, some of the prior uh left atrial appendage closure stuff, which I don't think was quite as compelling, but it seems like in those patients who are already in the surgeries, it seemed like it actually had um, safety and benefit if I'm understanding some of the prior data correct. Yeah. I, I, when we were texting beforehand, Paul, I was like, this is, this is like when you go in for bowel surgery and you just take the appendix just because like that's, (laughs) I think it's kind of, (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of similar, although it's a little bit higher stakes. Uh, the appendix is causing people to have strokes. So this was, yeah, this was a, randomized trial and they saw, they saw decreased stroke and systemic embolism at 3.8 years follow-up. This was Whitlock et al. in New England Journal 2021. And um, it seemed like at least the editorialist that I read uh, was was thinking this might become standard of care because I guess why not, Paul? You're you're already in there, so you're already you might in as there. well. Yep. <laughs> you're already already in there mucking around. That's what they put on exactly. The you know, you're gonna we're gonna have your doctor mucking around in there. <laughs> Yeah. This is probably why this is not a cardiothoracic surgery podcast, by the way. <laughs> Finally, we should talk about anticoagulation. Beth, in, in the time that you've practiced, you probably are you seeing much warfarin anymore? Because when Paul and I were training, it was like all warfarin, the DOAX were new, but now are you seeing mostly the DOAX? It's mostly DOAX. I do see I've seen a couple people on warfarin, but rare, rarer. Right. So there's a couple 
there's a couple people where, as of right now, we're, we're hard recommending warfarin, and those are people with moderate to severe mitral stenosis, or anybody with a mechanical valve, we're still staying away from the DOAX in those patients. But Paul, how do you approach anticoagulation, like pulling the trigger, who you're going to, who you're going to start, uh, anticoagulation for? Yeah, it's, it's the old tried and true. I, I would hope probably most of our listeners at this point have heard of the, the CHAVS2 VAS score. And I, I think we've, we've alluded to it a little bit earlier in terms of just assessing likelihood of stroke. And if you have a score of greater than two in men or greater than three in women, and we, we talk a little bit about, um, that in the episode of how that, that consideration sort of came to be, then it's, it's probably reasonable to at least have a patient-centered discussion about actually pulling the trigger on active anticoagulation. Lower scores, the zero or one, it's, I, I think one specifically sort of can consider, I think, is the way the recommendation is ordered. But then there there's always the temptation to treat with aspirin as well in those lower-risk patients. But I think we discussed in the episode, the evidence behind that is kind of spotty. Yeah. And the, we also talked about the 2019 update to the guideline. Because now we're mostly using the CHADS2-VAS score, women have an extra point in that. So there's a, there's different scores for the men and women. So if a, if you're talking about the lowest, you know, if a man with a score of zero or a woman with a score of one, those are the patients where it's okay not to offer anticoagulation. For men with a score of one or women with a score of two, that's where it's, it's definitely a, a nuanced discussion. And then, as you said, Paul, scores of two for a man or three or above for a woman, um, then you're it's a 1A recommendation for anticoagulation. And uh, yeah, those visits are usually not short when you're starting someone on anticoagulation. It's usually a little bit nerve wracking for for everyone involved, uh, certainly more the patient than anybody else. You know, I think we've talked about a lot on this, Paul. I don't know that I don't know that we have much more. I mean, I know there's some cardioversion stuff in here, but do you think we should uh, we should let people go back and listen to the full if they want to hear the nuances of cardioversion. I, I think that we should. I think that they should. That sounds great. Okay. So maybe we can go to the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. Like the commitment, get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or you can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Um, a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. So with that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.